there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in documentary filmmaking, then this is the episode for you because my next guest has filmed and produced multiple films in addition to having worked as an on-air correspondent for BET. And for our listeners outside the U.S., that's Black Entertainment Television. But before I introduce you to Samson Styles, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays to give you an inside peek at the episodes and the professionals I'm going to be featuring that week. And I promise you, it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. And while you're there, I want to invite you to scroll down just a little bit and check out all the boxes that can help you find exactly the kind of professional you're looking for because each box contains the variety of careers you can explore, whether it's film, theater and the arts, or media and journalism, or science and research. There are hundreds of professionals just waiting for you to press play. Now, my frappuccino-loving, aspiring filmmakers, please grab your mug and take a chug because it is time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Samson Stiles, the founder, along with his wife, Thais, of their own production company, J-City Enterprise, which develops content for digital and linear platforms. Their most recent documentary, Killing Beef, Gun Violence in the Black Community has won Best Documentary at various film festivals, including in New Jersey, and has been picked up by Revolt TV, which is the music-oriented digital cable TV network founded by the one and only Sean Combs back in October 2013. Samson has already written an autobiography entitled Will I Die Before 21, which is going to be coming out in the not-too-distant future, we'll make sure to include a link once we have it. And to give you a little preview of Samson's path to where he is today, he was born in the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York. And when he was only 12 years old, Samson was sentenced to 18 months in a juvenile detention center for robbery and truancy. After his release, Samson's focus shifted back to the streets which ended up landing him in Fort Dix Federal Correctional Facility, where he spent seven years of his young adult life. He was released in June 2004, so over 15 years ago, and shortly thereafter started filming his first documentary. With his unique perspective and authentic voice, Samson became a BET news correspondent and covered a wide range of issues relevant to the Black community. In addition to daily news briefs, Samson produced, wrote, and hosted his own special reports for BET, one of which is entitled Bullets and Ballots, the official street cat goes to Washington, which explored gun violence and politics. Another one entitled 50 Shots, 
The official street cat takes on police brutality, which explored gun violence and police brutality in the Sean Bell case. And yet another locked out ex-cons and the vote in which Samson brought to light the disenfranchisement laws that keep 5.3 million black Americans from voting. Samson received several awards from the New York Association of Black Journalists for investigative reporting, cultural and entertainment and commentary. He was nominated in 2008 and 2009 by the NABJ for Best Investigative Report, and he participated in covering the inauguration of Barack Obama in 2008, which helped him and his team win the 2010 NAACP Image Award for Outstanding News Information. Samson, welcome to Time for Coffee. I want to give you my special New York T for C greeting. How you brewing? <laughs> I'm brewing just fine. Okay, awesome. And I, and I also have to ask you if you're caffeinated and ready to go. Yes, I'm ready to go. And thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, I am so grateful to you, Samson, for making the time. I know you've got all kinds of things that are brewing in your life and you're just firing on all pistons. (laughs) And we're going to be getting into that. So before we get into your personal story, your backstory and how you found your purpose, I would love for us to start by learning more about your production company, J-City Enterprise, and what you and Thais, and I'm guessing you must have some others helping you out, are working on right now. Yeah. So what we do basically is we take ideas, show ideas, and we bring them to life. We textualize it so that now someone can see their idea manifest. So show ideas that we think that would be a good sale to a network. We develop trailers and pilots, and uh, we have a production team. We have a studio that we're partnership with in Newark, New Jersey. A lot of our partnerships is in Newark. You know, that's the birthplace of, of film. I did and, not know that. Yeah, Newark, New Jersey. And so we have other alliances that we connect with to basically get it done and shop to networks. And we also shoot like local commercials for people and anything that's dealing with video promotion as well as video content to pitch, we basically do. So before we talk about your latest documentary, Killing Beef, I would love for you to give us an example of maybe a recent idea that has come to you or that you and Thais came up with and that you've been moving forward, developing those trailers and pilots? We have a pilot that we did that's called Squash and Beef. And it's like a a Judge Mathis meets Jerry Springer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, um, but it's dealing with real issues that, that help resolve people conflict that don't usually go to police. So in the urban culture, there's a basic policy that no one really wants to involve the police. They don't see the police as their friend, but they may see the guy that's respected in the neighborhood that has some type of integrity and street credibility 
that they will take his his uh, leadership as a judge, you may say, right? So, so we developed that and we pitching that to networks, but sometimes we're a little ahead of ourselves. And I noticed that some things we may develop, they will be ready for it maybe in the next two or three years, but we just seen so far ahead of the curve. And that's, that's one of our challenges is that we see uh, too far ahead sometimes. Do you think it's because you really have your finger on the pulse within the urban culture, as you were just saying? Yeah, I think that is very much so. Like when I first did a documentary called The Brooklyn Girls Fight Club, that was a little bit of, uh, ahead of its time. And it took like maybe four years after it was done for it to get the traction that it should have been getting. Got it. I mean, that's both a blessing. I, I mean, I, I can only see it as a positive that you are like that real in the kind of programming that you're trying to put out. Yeah. It could be challenging as well because, see, most people, they have a, a cookie-cutter system, right? So they look at, okay, what's working now? Oh, can we get a show that's a little bit like this one? And it's like, you know, this one is that one. Like, you know, no, we have something new that's, you know, that's that stands in its own lane. But that's the thing that people sometimes don't want to take chances on. Yes, That's such a great metaphor for life. (laughs) I mean, even outside of your business, you know, there are the people who are the sheep and they just kind of blindly follow whatever everyone else is doing. And then there are the leaders who are willing to take risks. Right. Right. So, Samson, take us into a typical day for you as an entrepreneur and a filmmaker. Well... A typical day now that school started is we have um, workshops that we developed uh, around our last documentary, Killing Beef, which basically it trains the youth and also staff members that work with youth in underserved communities to help them understand and be able to better critically think when it comes to gun violence the causes, effects, and solutions to gun violence. So we have a lot of schools lined up. So in the morning, basically, we contacting and scheduling appointments on when we're available to come and speak at their school or do a workshop, whatever package that they desire, which is still under the J-City umbrella. And we're developing, like right now, I have a deal, a licensing deal with Revolt, but I also have an option for a streaming deal. So now we had to re-edit one of the documentaries, Killing Beef, to be able to meet Netflix standards. So now I'm in the re-edit, which I've been doing a sound mix for a couple, few days now. So while I'm doing that, my wife, Ty, is running around taking care of a lot of other administrative things. So, And we have people outside that are also... Like we have Jeff Billingsley, he's from Rutgers University, and he helps basically sets up a lot of our tours that we'll be doing in New Jersey. And then we have other partners in New York that's doing the same. So it's, it's basically like a, it's a it's a pretty small but well-oiled machine because everyone is already doing what they're doing anyway, but now they're just including J-City in the mix. Nice. 
Nice. So the schools that you are going to speak at, are you talking about K through 12 or are you talking about higher education or both? No, it's really both because what we do is, see, you have a lot of teachers or staff members that work with, even counselors that works with underserved communities that don't really understand the mindset that propels them on a day-to-day or what they really going through. They just, you may just hear individual problems, right? But what we do with our workshop is we basically give them a better, I'm not going to say like a general consensus, but it's, it's pretty much a general outlook of the, the common mindset that exists within these communities that could be overlooked or could be taken for, you know, for granted at times. And when they are more socially aware of the conditions that exist within these communities and to understand the mindset of the people that exist, not saying that we all one dimensional, but we all have a foundation that we all can relate to that comes from these communities, right? Like, we all heard gunshots in these communities that may not be prevalent in other communities. Kids know at the age of five, six to duck when they hear gunshots. And, you know, what what this does to their psyche, right? Um, people coming in that may not have had a meal, may not have had breakfast and just had a candy bar. So they may be a little, you know, they, they may be a little hyper, but you may think he has ADHD, but... He, he's not getting the proper nourishment at home. So we address all these problems and make them be able to identify with them when they see them, which will help them better critically think when it comes to them service in this community. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely it does. And as I was listening to you, Samson, I was thinking, and I, I find it very interesting that you began with the work that you're doing as an advocate. Because I wasn't going to raise that until later in our interview. And I probably, no, no, no. I was, I was just going to say, I probably should have framed that right out of the gate in the introduction because you are a social activist in addition to being an entrepreneur and a filmmaker. And your mission in your films really is to educate the public and to try to affect social change. Correct. Yeah. And to galvanize, to galvanize people to, to make that change, you know, because it's, it's something as little like the last documentary, Killing Beef, people that seen it said, you know, after watching this, it makes me want to do something. It makes me want to do something because we show how the communities are coming together like from everyone from the police to the lawmakers to, you know, to the average kid that's on the block have to come together to, you know, to make this change. And even if they're not understanding or knowing that they actually coming together. Right. So we show that in the film and people that walk away from it. That is, you know, their takeaway from it is that they want to do something to help. That is serving its purpose. And what happened with What's so beautiful about it is to be able to create a business that's helping people and that's helping yourself in the process. And so it's like, it's a win-win. Listen, I got to tell you, 
I have to learn from you because that's exactly what I'm trying to do with time for coffee. Mm-hmm. You and I can talk later. But uh, so before we get into killing beef, because there is so much there, you've just alluded to it. Can you take us into the process of making a documentary film? What are all the moving pieces that you as a filmmaker are juggling? Well, poof. Well, there's, uh, first of all, is knowing your story, right? What's the story that you want to tell? So, Killing Beef, we filmed that off and on for 10 years and finally completed it in 2018. But my wife and I started it in 2008. You know, but we will get bogged down with the daily routines of life and, you know, and, and push this to the side. And then, you know, we pick up when, when we can until we finally got it completed. And during that time, the story's changed. But generally, when doing a documentary, you know the story that you want to tell. You have to do some research. You have to really do some research and make sure that um, you get credi- credible people to basically give their insight to every facet of the story that you're telling so if we're talking about me or the kids, what they're dealing with in education, we have to have some educators there. We have to have superintendents and deans of schools. And so then we mark out our, our hit list. We, we're going to have to have police if we're talking about crime. We're going to have to have prosecutors. We're going to have to have people that basically will lend to the story and give it credibility and to be able to give it some professionalism, not just people talking about what they feel. We have to, you know, give it some substance, some factual substance, right? So then Thais is very good at locating everyone I needed for interviews from the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, and the mayor of Mount Vernon, all the way to the Bloods, and Crips from Lincoln Projects and Lower East Side. You know, she made sure that I got to everyone that I needed to to make sure that the film told the correct story. And another thing you have to make sure you do is tell the other side of the story as well. One of former Attorney General of Jersey seen the documentary and he said that he thought it was going to be one-sided at first. You know, and he's a prosecutor. He voted for Trump. He's, he's very conservative. And he said, after he seen the doc, he had to give the thumbs up because I answered his questions as well. So I was like, okay, so that means we did our job, right? Because you want to be able to think for the other people that may be opposing which your view, and you have to tell that side as well. So after you do all the interviews, right, you have to transcribe the interviews. So if you interviewing 20 people and you spoke to them for an hour, you have to transcribe now, you know, 20 hours worth of um, interviews. Then you got to go through all the interviews and make sure that you tell the story now using what they're saying. So that's a process in itself. And then you write your script. So after you write your script, you done shot the interviews. You have to make sure that you get B-roll to go with the the footage that you, I mean, the interviews, so that it's just not a bunch of talking heads. You have to give some visual stimulation that goes with what they're saying. So, for instance, if someone is talking about in 1989, the police corruption at the 77th precinct was da-da-da-da-da, 
you have to be able to show that, right, while they talk. So then you pull in footage, you pull in still pictures and, and things to go with what the interviewer is saying or what the story is saying. And then I'm going through it briefly. Yes. <laughs> so then after, you know, then after doing that, you basically have to start your editing. So you have your edits on paper first. It's a paper edit. So you have your your storyline, you have your time codes, in and outs on what interview is what, saying what at what time, and then you, you know, you start editing. You put that on your timeline, which is a whole nother process. So that's one way of doing a documentary, which is called, um, you know, that's basically like a narrative. You may have voiceover to help narrate some of the story that maybe someone is missing or maybe that something is missing, you know, you do some voiceover to fill that in to basically explain what's going on. That's one way of storytelling. And then you have Verite documentaries, which we did with our first one, Brooklyn Girls Fight Club, which is that you follow the people and they actually tell the story. And that takes long and it's harder to do. And there's no narrative, right? With the Verite, there's no script. Right. I mean, you do a script afterwards. People say they don't, but I mean, but you you have to. You have to look at the footage and know and, and still splice it to have it make sense. But for the most part, you following individuals and letting them tell the story without any voiceover. You may have a card that displays that they may say, uh, now Stephanie Curse went to prison for two years and the card might pop up, you know, and now it shows uh, her friends came in to go visit her. So now you see that, you know, what's going on like that. So there's different ways of doing it. And, and it depends. Verite can be easier sometimes if the person is a character and could tell the whole story just in following him for a week. And you're like, oh, wow, we got the story. You know, the whole story. Just following him. But then there's the thing of setting up cameras, making sure the sound is right. It's, it's a lot of technical stuff that goes into it to make the quality what it's supposed to be. And now with these phones, what I learned, you had interviewed one of my mentors, Michael Rosenblum, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And he, I learned a lot from him, too, with the boot camp that he has, how to just use your iPhone. Yes. And get a lot of the work done that you need to get. So even in Killing Beef, some of the scenes, a lot of the B-roll is shot with an iPhone incredible and i'll make sure to include a link to michael's time for coffee episode in the show notes to this episode as well so our listeners can can check him out and learn more about the courses that michael teaches so let's get into killing beef why did you pick that topic i picked that topic because uh i've been shot five times when I was involved in the streets. And um, one of the things that touched my heart growing up in the 80s in the crack era is normalizing murder. Like in my building that I grew up alone, uh, I grew up in Pink Houses, Projects, and in Brownsville. But in Pink Houses alone, just in my building that I grew up in, four, four close friends of mine passed away got killed because of gun violence. That's four in one building. I was trying to count how many people I knew personally that have gotten killed when I was in prison. I I, I I didn't have too much to do at that time. I said, 
let me mark down and write the names of everyone I know that that gotten shot and killed. And Andrea, I stopped counting when I got to 100. I got to 100 and I just stopped. I could have kept going. So gun violence always been a passion of mine to address because not only was I the perpetrator at one time and involved in everything that the streets had to offer, I also was a victim of it. And I've seen it so much and I had to tell the story, especially with me and one of the guys that shot. So tell us what Killing Beef is about. Well, Killing Beef, basically, the common thread is me having a conversation with, it seems like it's my younger self, 11-year-old Christopher Underwood, uh, he lost his brother to gun violence, who was 14 years old. And at 11, that's when I first started my life of crime. So he's a good boy, he's in school and everything, but he's, 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 he's dealing with this. He just lost his best friend, his brother got killed, 14 years old. And um, he's talking to me about why is this happening? Why is our community so plagued with this gun violence? And through our conversation, we cover all the causes, effects, and solutions to gun violence and using my story as well. So the common thread is me having a conversation with this young man. And then through that conversation, it leads to what happened with me and the person that shot me and how we dealt with reconciliation and how, you know, and what are we doing now? So it's a full rounded story that hardly no one can duplicate because how many people got shot that was in the street and then got with the person that shot them and then they started speaking to kids at juvenile detention centers and at schools and stuff to try to keep them from going through what they've just been through. I'm getting chills as you're talking, Samson, and I haven't seen Killing Beef yet, but I did watch the incredible trailer on your website. And by the way, Samson's website is samsonstyles, S-T-Y-L-E-S dot com. And it is powerful. So let's flash back to when you were 12. Mm -hmm. What happened that landed you in a juvenile detention center? And would you please share, Samson, what you discovered about yourself after you were locked up? Mm. Well, I started my life of crime at 11, and by the time I was 12, I, I got sentenced to 18 months. I started out like picking pockets and doing robberies and snatching chains, pocketbooks, that type of thing. And so at that time, you only were able to get sentenced 18 months. That's all that a juvenile under 15 could get sentenced to, no matter how many crimes you know he was arrested for. So they combined a bunch of crimes I did and then gave me 18 months. And during that time, I spent a lot of the 18 months in this place called Lincoln Hall, which is in Lincolndale, New York. And when I got there, I, I, I realized that I had a affinity for, for writing. I used to write to my mother. I used to write to uh, <laughs> the little girls that I, you know, that I was trying to send letters to and, you know, to, to get some response from and to get them to send me pictures. And I had a way with words on paper 
to the point that a lot of the other younger guys there that was with me in the detention center would come to me and ask me to write their girlfriend or somebody that they like a letter for them. And that became, you know, and I was like the go-to person to write letters for people. And that's when I realized that I had a love for writing and a love for like basically telling a story on, on paper and just telling stories, period. So you were a 12 and 13 year old Cupid. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you when you got out? Well, when I got out, I was 14 and they put me in my right grade because I caught up on, on my schoolwork when I was in the detention center. And shortly after, I came home, I was 14. By the time I think I was 16 or turning 17, the crack epidemic came out and I you know, wound up falling victim into selling drugs and stuff. And my, my mind went right back to the, I went right back to the streets. And um, I continued a life of crime up until 2004, up until I was released. And four months after I came home, my cousin gave me a camera. I had an idea to film these girls that fight in the fight club, which I started. And and then we started doing a documentary. And then one thing led to another. And I started meeting the right people. You know, um, I made a trailer of the, the Brooklyn Girls Fight Club, um, started shopping it. I ran into Nelson George, who was a cultural critic, a director, executive producer, you know, author. He's like a big dude in the industry, which I didn't know at the time, or I would have been very much, very much so intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, I didn't know, and I'm glad I didn't because I was just being myself, and he liked that. And um, then he brought me to his friend, Reginald Hutland, who was the president of BET at that time. And he said, you know, I... Uh, I want to give you a career opportunity. And I said, you know, why Why would you want to do this? Because where I come from, no one does something for nothing. So I was like, you know, what would you get out of it? Nah, he said, you know, I, I get to just bring you to the network and it'll bring uh, a fresh perspective, you know? And he said, um, you got talent and, you know, and we want to exploit that talent. And I went on an audition and out of everyone that was so stuffy and doing a regular news reporting voice, you know, I did my thing like I would the street way. And they said, yeah, that's the one that we want. And that's what started my career. So my career started as just being myself. And that's one thing I learned to take away from always be yourself. Yeah. You got to ask the questions. You have to be proactive because most people, when you're really at any point in your career, it's very unusual that you would have someone say, hey, why don't you come and do this with me? Because this is going to help you grow and expand. You have to be the one looking for those opportunities and willing to go above and beyond. Right. And I, I never was late. Made sure that I remember everyone's name. Made sure that I, I socialized with everyone. And, 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 and with me, it was, I had to make them feel safe because off top, they know, here come this guy that Nelson George is bringing in that just came home from prison that was a real street dude. And now they're trying to turn him into a legal reporter. So I had people that was hating on me too. That was like, who is this? I went to school for this amount of time. I'm not even on camera. That's their main you know, goal is to get on front of the camera, be a correspondent and hear they bring this dude from the streets that just came in from prison. So I was getting a lot of that as well. 
you know, and then I had to let people feel safe to let them know that, you know, I'm not the average street guy that you may look at on TV or that you may think of, you know, that did prison and just if you say something wrong to me, I'm a snap and nah. So I had to be very patient and I had to take a lot that I normally or other people normally wouldn't have. They would have walked away or been confrontational. I had to be more humble actually and show like, you know, no, I'm, that's that's not going to break me and no, I'm not going to snap. And, and I was getting tested often because of that, right? So it was a lot that I was dealing with, but I knew I had to to, to maintain my composure at all times and just learn as much as I could and to be proactive, as you stated before. So on that yeah. point, it may have been during your time at BET, it may have been another point, but could you share with us a time in your professional life when you really struggled? And the most important point here is how you persevered and a lesson that you may have learned in the process. So this is while I'm at BT or afterwards? It doesn't matter. Whenever you really felt like you were hitting a wall or something happened that could have gone sideways, maybe did go sideways, but how you managed to right the ship and what you learned in the process. Mm. Well, I, I had plenty moments in my professional career where I hit walls that basically set me back or kept me from moving forward. And most of it was just because people didn't open up doors for me or didn't think I was qualified because I wasn't in the club. Recently, once I left BT, or once they let me go because they said they couldn't afford my salary anymore, is that I hit a real tough, a real tough spot financially, and my wife had lost her gig maybe three months prior. So we were going through strenuous times financially, and I was trying to get a job with a lot of places that you know. I was more than qualified for. I, I mean, I've been at BET for 10 years producing. You look at my IMDb, you see the shows and stuff I produce, but nobody would hire me. I couldn't get a job. So fortunately, my wife had landed something. And, and during that time, I said, okay, now I can really dig into getting this documentary completed because we've been filming it off and on for since 2008. And after I sat down, for like four months straight and just was nothing on my mind but completing the documentary and then shopping it is where I overcame that hurdle. And once Killing Beef, once that emerged, it was like my career was rejuvenated with a little extra behind it because now I developed workshops and I'm in a whole nother field, like with the schools as being a vendor than I wasn't before. So the thing was to keep pushing and I couldn't stop pushing because unfortunately that, which wound up being fortunate, that I am in a situation that I have to push through and I have to do it regardless if someone is going, going to hire me or not. So what I learned from that is don't rely on other people Rely on yourself and if you, you know, have a higher power, 
which I do, you know, believe and keep pushing through because sooner or later it's going to break for you. It's going to break open for you. The doors are going to open for you. But you have to go through that pain and that struggle before you get there. You're going to want to quit. You're going to want to give up. And you can't do that. And for the people that do have people to back to back them, like your parents or, you know, you have a, a, a safety net, don't use it. Don't use the safety net because it's going to cripple you. So you have to just keep pushing as if you don't have a safety net. And then it'll happen for you. Oh, my God, Samson, a hundred percent. In fact, I just released an episode with a man who has a very similar message to you. His name is Dove Barron. It's episode 270. I highly recommend Java Junkies take that in because it is all about how pain and really working through the pain, moving through it, not numbing yourself with alcohol, drugs, or food or whatever, but moving through it is actually how you find your purpose. Yes. So final time for coffee questions, Samson. And I usually ask my guests who've gone to college if they could go back and do it all over again, blah, blah, blah. But based on your wisdom... And the experience that you've had in your life, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self Mm. if you could go back and do it all over again based on the wisdom that you have now? If I had a message to my younger self, it would be I would have taken advantage of the military and went to college for free and came out debt free and would have had that college experience. But if I would have done that, I wouldn't be Samson Styles giving you this story and I wouldn't have been valued because of the story that I have now. So I guess we are all meant to go through what we are meant to go through, including our mistakes, because mistakes are really just learning. And if you look at it like that, you know, it's not really a mistake. It's a, it's a learning lesson. And that's what creates wisdom. It's through the experience. Samson's new book, which will be coming out at some point, either in 2019 or 2020, is entitled, Will I Die Before 21? We will make sure to update the show notes and put that in there if it hasn't come out when this episode drops. His latest documentary Killing Beef, Gun Violence in the Black Community is on Revolt TV and hopefully will be on Netflix soon, right? Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Okay. It's definitely on one of these major streaming services. I have no doubt. And his conflict resolution workshop has been adopted by Rutgers University's Center for Gun Violence Research. His website is samsonstyles.com. Samson, I want to thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Andrea. And I hope that this touches someone, you know. Well, what I want to say before you say that, because I have my standard way of saying goodbye, which is I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today, for brewing it up with me. Are you still in Brooklyn or are you in Jersey? 
No, I'm in I'm in Jersey. I'm in Hackensack. Okay. Well, from from Hackensack, because what you are doing is so important. And now the work that you're doing as a documentarian and as an advocate is just remarkable. And it has been my pleasure to have the opportunity to showcase what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You really made my day. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.